Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome everyone to the Movie Marquee. Today's showing is Kill Bill, Volumes 1 and 2 from 2003 and 2004 from director Quentin Tarantino. With me are Ted. Do you find me sadistic? No kiddo. At this moment, this is me at my most masochistic. And Ken. Now you should listen to this, because this concerns you. The amount of venom that can be delivered in a single bite can be gargantuan. You know, I always like that word gargantuan. So rarely have I had the opportunity to use it in a sentence. And I'm Eric. It's mercy, compassion, and forgiveness I lack, not rationality. Well, that sums me up pretty good. Wouldn't you guys agree? Amen, brother. Amen, brother. All right. We are talking Kill Bill. We're doing one and two together on one podcast because technically it's one movie just broken up. So we're going to dissect this one. I would have liked to see this as one long movie. I think that would have been cool. Not me. Let's dive right into this one. Ted, give us the particulars of the Kill Bills. Kill Bill 1 and 2, both directed by Quentin Tarantino, both with a screenplay by Quentin Tarantino. Part 1 has a running time of 111 minutes. Part 2 has a running time of 137 minutes. The release date for Part 1 was October 10th, 2003. And Part 2 was released April 16th, 2004. Part 1 had a $30 million budget, and Part 2 had a $30 million budget. Box office gross, Part 1 was $180.9 million, and Part 2 was $152.2 million. Kill Bill Volume 1 has Uma Thurman as The Bride, codename Black Mamba, Lucy Liu as Oren Ishii, codename Cottonmouth, David Carradine as Bill, codename Snake Charmer. Vivica A. Fox as Vernita Green, codename Copperhead. Michael Madsen as Bud, codename Sidewinder. Daryl Hannah as L. Driver, codenamed California Mountain Snake. Julie Dreyfus as Sophie Fatale. Sonny Chiba as Hattori Hanzo. Chike Kuriyama as Gogo Yubari. Gordon Liu as Johnny Moe. Michael Parks as Ranger Earl McGraw, Michael Bowen as Buck, Kenji Oba as Shiro, and James Parks as Ranger Edgar McGraw. Starring in Volume 2, again we have Uma Thurman as The Bride, David Carradine as Bill, Michael Madsen as Bud, Daryl Hannah as L Driver, Gordon Liu as Pai May, Michael Parks as Esteban Viejo, Bo Svensson as Reverend Harmony, Jeannie Epper as Mrs. Harmony, Chris Nelson as Tommy Plimpton, Samuel L. Jackson as Rufus, Larry Bishop as Larry Gomez, Sid Haig as Jay, Perla Haney Jardine as BB, Helen Kim as Karen Kim, and Lucy Liu as Oren Ishii, Vivica A. Fox as Vernita Green, and Julie Dreyfus as Sophie Fatale. You know, I first saw the credits for this. I thought it was Julie Louis-Dreyfus. 
I know, right? And she just wasn't the Louie, and I looked at it, and I go, oh, that's, <laughs> that's not, not Julie Louie Louis Dreyfus. Oh. Right? Reviews on this one. What do we got? For Rotten Tomatoes, the critic's score for part one is 85%, which makes it a certified fresh. Part two sits at 84%, which is certified fresh. Part one has an audience score of 81%. Part two has an audience score of 89%. Here again, it was hard to find negative critics. I mean, there was a couple of our bigger heavy hitters that I found that didn't care for it. But for part one, Manhala Dargis from the Los Angeles Times said, For the first time in Tarantino's filmmaking career, the written story, both in word and development, proves the least interesting part of the whole equation. And Jonathan Rosenbaum from the Chicago Reader said, even more gory and adolescent than its models, which explains both the fun and the unpleasantness of this globe-trotting romp. Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle said, it boggles the mind that after six years of silence, all Tarantino has to offer is this garbage. That's particularly harsh. Wow. Man, that's harsh. Yeah. And negative critics for part two Mark Caro from the Chicago Tribune, for those seeking the vibrant innovation of Tarantino's first movies or the sheer rush of Kill Bill Volume 1, Volume 2 feels like a dulled blade. Anne Hornaday from the Washington Post said about Volume 2, it's a soul-deadening experience. And David Denby of the New Yorker said, the pop encyclopedist and video store genius has become a megalomaniac, and the exhilarating filmmaker he might have been is disappearing fast. Could not disagree more. Ooh, wow. But our positive critics, this is the cream of the crop. Richard Roper from Ebert and Roper at the movie said of part one, this is the ultimate movie for kung fu drive-in geeks. Peter Travers, Rolling Stone, and Kill Bill, Tarantino brings delicious sin back to movies. The thrill you get from something down, dirty, and dangerous. Dustin Thompson of the Washington Post said, Tarantino has matched, if not eclipsed, the power and scope of 1994's Pulp Fiction. Roger Ebert said of Part 1 from the Chicago Sun-Times, Kill Bill Volume 1 shows Quentin Tarantino so effortlessly and brilliantly in command of his technique. The movie is not about anything at all except the skill and humor of its making. It's kind of brilliant. And of Part 2, Richard Roper said, A beautiful, twisted, complex martial arts soap opera. Peter Travers from Rolling Stone said, You'll thrill to the action, savor the tasty dialogue, and laugh like bloody hell. Christy Lemire of the Associated Press said, If Kill Bill Volume 1 was like a roundhouse kick to the head, Volume 2 is practically a warm hug. And Roger Ebert said of Volume 2, Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 2 is an exuberant celebration of movie making, coasting with heedless joy from one audacious chapter to another, working as irony, working as satire, working as drama, working as pure action. I liked it even more than Kill Bill Volume 1. So let's talk about the first time we saw this movie. Uh, how about you, Ken? I saw this in the theater when it came out. I saw both films when it came out. I was nice intrigued by the coming attractions. It looked like fun. Cool. I don't remember the first time I saw it. It was on video. I can tell you that. It wasn't in the theater. It was probably, geez, I don't know, 15 plus years ago. And uh, to be honest, it's been a while since I really sat down and watched these movies. How about uh, you, Ted? Like Ken, I saw both of these in the movie theater. I had been waiting for these two movies. I remember 
following this story of this on the internet about the fact that this was going to be one movie and then it was cut into two. I had seen Pulp Fiction, then I watched Reservoir Dogs, and then I watched Jackie Brown, which are the first three movies. And I was all in on Tarantino. I was everything that he did and said at that point was something that I tuned into. So when he did From Dust Till Dawn, and he was part with Robert Rodriguez for that movie, and the whole bit, I was full in. These are movies that I'll pull out maybe two or three times a year and watch because I adore them. Okay, let's kick it off. Uh, This movie is divided into five chapters for volume one, and then uh, four chapters and the last chapter, face-to-face, for volume two. And we are going to uh, review both movies as one. So this might be a little bit longer of a podcast. So let's kick it off with uh, chapter two. Ken, roll us into it. Actually, it's chapter one, called two. Chapter one, called two. Yes, I know. Now you're just splitting hairs, but that's fine. (laughs) So Tarantino does as he makes everything a little difficult for everyone. Chapter one, called chapter two. Kick it off, Ken. Yeah, it is a little confusing with it. It is a little confusing, yes. I think it's called two because it's the second person that she actually gets revenge on. It actually starts off with Bill shooting the bride, Beatrice, or you want to call her kiddo or... The greeter at the Holiday Inn. I don't know. She has so many freaking names. Black Mamba. and All we know right now is that she's the bride. They bleep out her name. Which pisses me off. That's the because one thing that pisses me off. you don't need to off. know her name at that point. Well, you know what? They keep on bleeping her name later on after they have already told us what her name is. And they keep on bleeping the name. That freaked me so, out when I heard I'm, these bleeps. I'm like, what is that? Is that my disc? What is that beep coming yeah. from? The way Tarantino explained it is that at that point in the movie, she hadn't earned the audience knowing her name yet. She's still the bride. That beep is so annoying. So she rolls up at the house in the pussy wagon. She knocks on the door. And of course, Bernita, who's probably killed a lot of people in her life, just answers the door regularly. She doesn't peep in the eye hole to see who it is. She doesn't ask who is it. She just opens the door. Probably because she thinks her daughter's coming home. She just opens the door and then... Boom, just all hell breaks loose. And then they start fighting until her daughter comes home. And then they have to stop. And of course, they blame it on her dog. What the heck? Poor little dog doesn't get a chance here to even plead his case. They go into the kitchen to have some coffee, decide that they're going to fight later, knife fight at a baseball field at 2.30 in the morning, I think it was. And then Bernita decides, you know what? I'm not going to be able to beat this bitch at night. I'm going to try to shoot her right here. And she must have the worst aim. <laughs> I understand that, that the gun is in the actual box of cereal. Who leaves, first of all, a gun in a cereal box when your kid probably loves cereal? That doesn't make any sense to me. But of course she misses the bride, kills her with a knife. Her daughter sees all this. She has one of the weirdest blank stares throughout this whole scene. She doesn't have any emotion in her eyes. She, it's just one of those like, oh, this is what's happening now and then she tells her that one day if she wants she can come to her for revenge probably out of all the scenes even though there's action here there's not a lot of substance behind that we don't know a lot here we're thrown right into the action because all the other characters get a lovely background or are complex here we don't get to see that with vernita the only thing that we know is she's upset that she wasn't the black mamba she believes that that should have been her nickname we see that she lives a normal life, has a husband and a child, typical suburban family, but we really don't know how she got there compared to everybody else. The fight scenes are great here. 
it's interesting. It's just compared to the rest of the film, this is the low part of the film. Like with most Tarantino movies, we start off immediately with a bang. It starts off by grabbing you by the throat. I mean, because you see her, she's on the ground and she's bleeding. Something obviously horrible has happened. And then you hear Bill shoot her. It just grabs you. I agree to a certain extent. We don't get a lot of backstory on Vernita other than we get her name and we get her code name. And we do find out that she is a knife expert, but she ends up getting killed with a knife, which is kind of an odd choice. The fight sequence here is great. It does what it needs to do. It sets the table. There's some levity there that is funny. Like when her daughter walks in and they hide the knives behind their back, they blame it on the dog. And the kid's like, really? It was the dog? Yeah, I, their face I mean, is I, all with blood and stuff and cuts, and that's and that's the dog. <laughs> it's like unless they have like a rampaging Saint Bernard, like Cujo or something. That would have been funny um, if they would have shown this little puppy just this well, walker. Yeah. Crab. I would have had a lot of fun with that. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that this isn't bad. It's just compared to every other story, this one is kind of the low point. The fighting's great. It's just a little disappointing that we don't get to know more about her backstory, how she right. got there. I love that she does regret because yes. she's a mother now too and i'm wondering if beatrix knew that her daughter was still alive she may have spared her maybe she would take off an arm or something like that if she knew her daughter was still alive maybe i don't, I don't know. think so it's... i don't think any of the group would have spared the bride in this case they're all out for revenge and death and defense whether or not they all knew that Bill was raising Bibi, I think is kind of irrelevant. They don't really have any uh, any mercy for her. Remember when she goes through the list of what would be fair? It would be to kill her daughter, kill her husband because of what happened. But if she knew that her daughter was still alive, she doesn't kill Elle later on. She just removes an eye. The snake's in there, too. Yeah. snake's she's, in she's there, and she's dead. blind, but we don't yeah. know if she's she ever really dead. does. dead. Come on. I do understand what you're saying, Ken, as far as Vernita. She is, out of all of the Viper assassination squad, she's the one we know the least about. Her character is not fleshed out as much as it possibly could have been. I think you have a different story if the bride knows that her daughter lived. I think we're talking something different. I don't think she still lets her live. We come to find out in the next chapter one of the reasons why Beatrix is so out for revenge outside of the fact that her husband was killed and she thinks her daughter was murdered. Yeah, it's unfortunate for Vanita, but I think what we find here, if you look at the way Vivica A. Fox acts here, I think it sets a, a tone for the rest of the Vipers, except for one, and that's L. But I think all the other Vipers have some sort of regret. We definitely see that here. And then we'll talk about it later with Oreni She and with Bud. They don't feel real good about the way that all went down with the bride. So even at the end of the day, Vernita knows she's got what's coming to her. We can agree to disagree on that one, but I believe that they all pretty much are out for blood and really could care less about that. I don't think they feel bad about anything they've done, but let's move on to our next chapter. It's going to be chapter two, The Blood-Spattered Bride. This is an interesting one. So the first chapter, you're kind of just breaking into, all right, she's driving in on a truck and she's beating the hell out of this person. Why is that? We don't know. So we have a little bit of clarity now. A little bit more of the puzzle is opened up. In this one, we see the sheriff come in, the law enforcement group coming after the massacre. 
as they're calling it. Everyone is murdered in this church. Now, at this point, we don't really know why everyone is murdered in this church, but everyone is. You see uh, a pan image of everyone's body and the blood and everything. Sheriff comes up to her, says a few words, and hey, she spits up something. She's alive. Awesome. Great. She survived. Next scene, she's in the hospital. And then out of nowhere, our second murderer, if you will, L. Driver, played by Daryl Hannah there, dresses up in that really, really nice nurse outfit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, right? And Whistling comes in there. Huh? She's whistling, whistling a tune. Yeah. Whistling a tune. Amen to that. Coming in there to knock off our good bride. Gets the phone call from Bill who says abort. Little bit of respect there from Bill who says, you know what? Let her live. Move on. Then we get that really awkward scene after she wakes up from the coma. After four years, starts crying, losing it, knowing her baby's gone. Here's the door. Goes back into like she's in coma mode. And then it's Buck who I guess is one of the orderlies, I'm trying to be gingerly about this, and, and some friend of Buck who comes in, who I guess is into necrophilia. Of course, she's not really dead at that point, so I guess it's not really necrophilia, but it's 75 bucks. You get 20 minutes. He gives her a few ground rules. He starts doing his thing. She attacks him, bites his tongue off. I assume does something else and kills him. Buck comes back in, as we all know, and she starts bashing his head in the door saying, where's Bill? Where's Bill? He doesn't know anything about it. <laughs> like she sees the name tag, sees the tattoos and gets that flashback kind of introducing himself. And I'm sure he had a few uh, sexual encounters with her, too. And she just goes ape shit on him. I'm assuming crushes his skull, kills him, takes the keys gets to his truck and of course at this point she hasn't moved her legs in four years so she's got problems walking does that little uh mind thing to get her toes moving wiggle the big toe wiggle the big toe and that's pretty much the end of chapter two personally i think this is a pretty interesting scene for setting up where we're going with it there's obviously many questions why did everyone get killed and who is bill but it does kind of lead to that revenge of where she's going here. What do you think, Ken? My thoughts on this is, first of all, she's in a coma, but she basically doesn't have anything at all attached to her. And with all the screaming that's going on, not one person is coming to check on her or what's going on in this room. There's a lot of noise going on here. That guy screams his head off when he's getting his tongue or lip or whatever man, it is sound, that she's ripping off. Doors, man. What are you uh, about? Yeah, in a hospital, there's no such sure. thing as a soundproof door. Yeah. No, they they need to know everything that's going on in, in your room. She's in a coma and she doesn't have anything hooked up to her except for like an IV. I get to dismiss this. I'm being a little too hard on the scene. It's really just there to set up the rest of the film. But I do see that her lips quiver. You could tell that she's awake when they're standing over her. And I think that's Adam Sandler's friend from all his movies is getting yeah. ready to have sex with her. And he even says something to the line of, you're the prettiest one that I've had all day, which makes me think that maybe he's done the rounds in the hospital, not just oh. this one, but he might be in other locations doing some other sick stuff. I like the fact that they don't make her legs work right away. Too many movies yeah. we see, like Steven Seagal all she, of a sudden. She's doing you know, cartwheels and acrobatics yeah. out of the bed no and, and yeah. she's concentrating on just getting her toe to wiggle but the fact that there's nobody in the hospital that is noticing her leaving noticing that anything happened in this room that's a little far-fetched but outside of that it's a pretty cool scene 
And what's the deal with Buck driving the pussy wagon and keeping that at the hospital? What a creepy guy altogether. What kind of hospital (laughs) keeps someone like that on staff with the audacity to drive a truck like that? He's Buck and he's here to fuck. That's right. This, again, just furthers the story of why she's out for revenge. We do find out here, though, if there was something to even set her further over the edge, then she thinks that her daughter's dead. But now she also overhears that she's unable to have kids again. To further how she feels what Bill has done to her just fuels her anger even more. On top of the fact that Buck and his merry group of people, I guess, that he's essentially pimping her out. That's just unconscionable. There's no sympathy for what happens to either one of these two guys. I mean, you're hoping that something bad happens to Buck. Oh, and I am, it did. Yeah. <laughs> um, the thing that gets me from this whole scene that I have the worst problem with is I have no what idea what it's like on a coma ward. I'll give that a little bit of a latitude. But it was what Ken said here where nobody sees her crawling out of the hospital into the garage ostensibly you would well she was in a wheelchair wheeling herself out but still right you would still think that somebody would have caught her at least noticed that she was wheeling herself out i do like the fact her muscles are have atrophied she has to overcome that and get her toes to wiggle uses like jedi mind tricks for that she's willing herself it's mind over matter what about the plate in the head? Oh, sure. We don't right. see that plate in the head for the rest of the movie. It like just hear disappears. It. It's one of the only times in a Tarantino movie that he alludes to something that doesn't become significant later on. Okay, well, she wakes up and she's like, Bill put a bullet in my head. Why the hell am I still alive? So she's reaching up to where she knew she took the bullet. That's where she hears the tin. Four years later, they put a skin graph over. Everything's grown back. So I think she's just trying to figure out why is she still alive? Usually things like that that Tarantino makes a point of pointing out. Usually it comes back around later okay. of some importance, but even like even but not in, in the this fights, case. Yeah. 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 In the fights it doesn't even make a okay. difference here. Let's move on here to the chapter three, the origin of Oren. This is uh an interesting one because it's Japanese anime. So if you like Japanese anime, you're gonna like this chapter. And if you don't, you won't um, like this chapter. You know, this movie's great. You got subtitles, you got Japanese anime, you got black and white, you got color. I mean, all you need is 3D. And you got everything you need here. We find out that her mother and her father are executed extremely savagely with her underneath the bed witnessing everything, which right there is going to just mess you up. And she somehow gets into the industry to get revenge on the individual who killed her parents because he's a pedophile and likes the younger gals. And man, she just stabs him to heart. The interesting thing about this scene and many of the other scenes is when these people get stabbed or items cut off, it is just gushing blood out of the body. Just an overbearing amount of blood and just... ah! And it's crazy. The Japanese anime blood and even the real life we'll talk about when they're cutting heads and arms off. Just going to town on this thing. It's awesome. But we find out that she becomes just a killer assassin. Just knocking people off with accuracy from hundreds of feet away. You know, after that, we go into the bride getting the the one way to Okinawa. Ted, what are your thoughts on it? I think it's good. I'm not the largest anime fan but the tone does not shift here 
by setting up the with the origins of Oren Ishii, she becomes more of a sympathetic character. We contrast that to how Vernita was. Oren is just, she's a badass. She overcomes so much, but we get everything we need. I think one of the reasons, other than the fact that Quentin probably has an affinity for some of the Japanese anime, is the fact that it is so bloody. Everything had to be done a certain way. I mean, we're adding more bodies in this particular story, but the story has to be told with these people being killed. It's a very violent life that these people are leading. Having it done in anime form, it takes down the shock factor a little bit. Kind of expect that when you see that things are going to be a little bit over the top. But setting the state for what's to come, I think we get our payoff later. Because they're like, oh, there's no way that this could be replicated in real life. (laughs) And then Quentin says, hold my beer. Hold on, man. You will get that payoff. Absolutely. If he does this now at this point in the movie and he goes that far over the top, what happens at the end doesn't have the same punch. I like the story. It makes O-Ren one of my most favorite characters in the whole show is learning how she came to what she became. What do you think, Ken? So I'm not the biggest fan of Japanese animations. This, is for me, doesn't elevate the movie or take anything away from the movie. It's just kind of there for me. I understand the need to tell the story. I was thinking maybe Uma Thurman should have just narrated the whole thing. The problem with doing it as a live action is it's just a little too over the top, too much. I mean, you're talking about an 11-year-old who's possibly having sex with this guy in order to try to kill him. That's not going to go extremely well with live action. And maybe by doing it by animate, it takes a little bit of that, which is important. That's a a good perspective. I didn't think about that. It sanitizes it in a way. A little bit. I would have liked to have known what the parents did that caused them to have to die. They don't really go into detail about this. For me, they almost seem to have died for no reason. So that kind of bothers me. I would like to have a little background. Probably didn't need to do a whole lot. They probably just didn't abide by what his rules were. One thing I I always wondered is if one of the henchmen was actually Bill. Because he has a sword and rings, it's possible. QT has never said that in any of his interviews, but... As far as the fan community that's risen up, especially with this movie, because each one of his movies has its own like individual group of fans, because most of Quentin's movies are homages to other types of movies. And this is obviously the Kung Fu movies from the 70s and early 80s. That's been alluded to very much that the assassin who worked for the Yakuza boss was bill it's up to the viewer at this point because like i said it's never been confirmed or denied i couldn't find where it had even been mentioned to quentin in any of his interviews if it adds something to the movie for you i'm all for it if it doesn't i'm all for it that way as well personally i think it makes it a little bit more interesting if it is bill because it makes a little more sense as to how Oren Ishii, who grows up around the Yakuza, ends up being tied in with Bill, who seems like lone gun squad leader. Yeah, I think so. I like to think that it's Bill came back because maybe to a certain extent he knows she's under there. I mean, she's making some sounds. Maybe Bill knows that and helps her get revenge later. First of all, as part of the assassination group, but not only that, but to kind of have a mob boss as an ally. Bill's a very smart individual. 
what we find out later and where Beatrix is giving the kind of the story of Bill, she says that he collects father figures, but I think he collects people as well. So it would make sense that the Yakuza boss's assassin was Bill and he collects this little girl that he can raise then to be an assassin. I mean, and have that connection. Everyone in Bill's stable, a woman? Outside of no, Bud, except his for brother, Bud. but everybody else is is female. The actual title of their crew was the Deadly International Viper Assassination Squad, or Divas. It's a good segue into rolling into our fourth chapter, The Man from Okinawa. Ted, take us away on that one. So we leave off with the bride catching a flight to Okinawa. The next time we see her, she's walking into a sushi bar and a very friendly sushi chef is working behind the bar but we find out later that his sushi isn't very good he's making small talk with the bride obviously he's like flirting with her a little bit but he's being an overall nice guy and he's got an assistant who is kind of mouthy and the interaction between these three people is really really good this is classic tarantino here this is with all the conversations that happen here it adds so much color to the show And then we find out the reason that the bride has come to Okinawa is to meet up with a samurai sword maker named Hattori Hanzo, who ostensibly we know now is the greatest sword maker in Japan, possibly in the world. When she drops the name, you see the look. We learn that the chef behind the bar is Hattori Hanzo, played by Sonny Chiba, who is an amazing kung fu star from Japan and Hong Kong. He takes her up to his apartment above the restaurant, and we see all the swords that he's made, that he's kept, and one's more exquisite than the next. And she asks him to make the sword he says no because he's wore a blood oath that he would never make another sword that's when she drops bill's name and she never really says his name but it's known that she's talking about bill the bringing up of that name causes hattori hanzo to agree to make the sword he says it's going to take a month we believe that she lives up in the apartment above or somewhere close to the restaurant. He then presents her with the sword and he says it's the best sword that he's ever made. And if she encountered God on her journey, the sword would cut God. This is the part of the Kung Fu story where the journey is given the okay by the higher power, essentially. And he sets her off on the journey. Towards the end of this particular section and chapter, This is where we find Oren Ishii, and she's at the head of a table of other Yakuza bosses, and they are in the process of naming her the head of the Yakuza crime syndicate. As if Quentin hasn't solidified the fact that Oren Ishii is a killer and ruthless, one of the bosses is not happy because Oren Ishii is a half-Japanese-Chinese-American, and now she's the head of the Yakuza. And he does not care for that. And he basically uses a pejorative to insult her. (laughs) And she runs the length of the table and she proceeds to cut his head off, which is awesome. And the look on the rest of the other guy's faces at the table, you know that she's not to be messed with. The way Lucy Liu delivers this 
is great. She holds herself in a way that has an air of civility like she's all brought together but she has this moment of mania where she just slices the dude's head off i think it's a great little contrast for her character it really sets up her power leading into the next chapter of what we're going to be looking at she is just a ruthless leader of the akuza and she is not afraid to show it i like the banter at the bar i think hakuza is comical in a way with his banter with his co-worker and with the bride. It's a comical scene. It's it's lighthearted. I think it's really needed because honestly, you know, as I'm watching that, I thought all hell was going to break loose in the bar between her and him, to be honest with you. Yeah. I'm just waiting for her to just lose it. But we right. find out a little tension. Is, yeah, a little tension. We find out he is the, the premier sword maker and she wants one of his swords. And she, you know, trains him and stuff. I think that's pretty cool. What about you, Ken? Well, first, I think we need to know that this takes place between her killing Renita and, of course, going after Lucy Liu's character, Oren. I'd like to know where she's getting the money to fly all the way to Japan. Did she have a stash somewhere where she can locate it? It's not cheap to fly to Japan at any time. And she's I getting new cars was... all the time, too. And she now, was an she's... assassin. Well, she stole the pussy wagon. She had to trade it in for a newer model, I guess. For the most part, I mean, I love the scene at the sushi bar. I think the conversations there are cool, and it's very enjoyable, and he's a very nice guy. These swords were just something that he made because he was good at it. He took pride in making these swords. Most people who take martial arts do it for the art of it, the beauty of it. I think that's why he made these swords. And then you have someone like Bill that takes them and uses them for something gruesome. And I think that's the only reason why he agrees to make a new sword. And I do think that relationship between, I'm going to say that maybe that's his brother or somebody that he's been with through thick and thin, maybe they served in military together or something because they talk about a general and emperor and all that. It just sounds like they are brothers or they've they've been together forever. Because when he does make that sword and they do that like little ceremony, he is there and he is serious with them on that. So I think they've been together through thick and thin. I thought that he was more like an apprentice. He's learning at under Hanzo's guidance to learn how to make the swords. We do learn, too, that Hattori Hanzo was one of Bill's mentors as well. And Bill went off and did his own thing and killed people, and which obviously had affected Hattori Hanzo. I don't think he probably does that because I don't think he has an apprentice because of Bill. I think after Bill, not only does he no longer make swords, but I don't think he teaches. And then when we get to... Oren and her decapitating one of the bosses. I mean, that scene is pretty, pretty intense. And her holding the head. I love the fact the that blood she's all gushing of out of the top of the blood head. Is gushing out, but Over she's like top. on top of yeah. on the top of that table so quickly to come right. over and like slice off his head. This is probably my favorite Lucy Liu role that she's had. She does a really great job here. I love her background story. I love how they set this all up for her character. For the first movie, she is the main person. She is that one that is going to be the most difficult person to kill because of the fact that she's been an assassin, but not only an assassin, she's ruthless in what she's gone through. And you kind of feel 
somewhat bad for her because of what we heard from her earlier. But at the same time, maybe not so much because of all the killers that she has surrounding her. And we'll talk more about that here in a minute. I think, though, that along with the meaning of the Master and then having the journey okayed by the higher power that the bride's going on. As far as being funny, I think this was needed because we went from two really kind of intense chapters where it starts off at a nine. It kind of maintains that level. It kind of lets off the steam. But like you said, Eric, too, I agree. You do feel the tension start to ramp up when we're trying to figure out who this guy really is. It is a steam letter where it kind of brings the temperature down a little bit, but then it ramps right back up to a nine again. I mean, she cuts his freaking head off. (laughs) Chapter five, we go up to a 10 plus, maybe even dial it up to 11 (laughs) for the ending of this one. The showdown at the house of blue leaves. I can't even put words into this scene. It is just wow. If you've not seen it, we're going to describe it for you as good as we possibly can. But our descriptions of what happens does not even begin to do justice for what the insanity that is on the screen. I had seen Kung Fu movies before. None of them had anything like this ever take place. No, this is just a straight Tarantino. We go from her cutting the head off of the Yakuza underboss so we get the picture of Sophie Vital, who we find out is Oren's secretary, and she was also part of Bill's crew. And the bride, she follows her to this restaurant, and in walks Oren and her crew. And in classic Quentin Tarantino style, Lucy Lou's in a full white gown, um, karate gi almost, but all of her bodyguards are dressed in the classic Tarantino black suit, white shirt, black tie. We get Reservoir Dogs scene of them slow walking through this restaurant where essentially they're taking over. It's a restaurant bar where there's a live band playing some really cool music, and they go to their own private room. Oren is kind of holding court in this back room. When the bride is sitting at the bar and sees a fatale, come down to use the restroom and to take a call. That's when the bride jumps at her opportunity and takes Sophie Vital hostage and calls out Oren's name. So Oren comes to the balcony and the bride makes it known that she's here for her head and for revenge. Oren then sends her bodyguards down two at a time. There's some really cool fighting here with swords and And she dispatches with most of them pretty quickly. And then we see Oren's main bodyguard and henchman. And she has what's called a meteor ball, which is something that I had never seen before this movie. What it is, is it's a chain with this metal ball about the size of a softball at the end of it. It's a martial arts weapon. And she just whips this thing around. They tear up Jake in this bar, but finally the bride takes her out, even though it looked like there for a second that this was all going to come to <laughs> come to an end. And just when you think the bride is now going to meet Oren, you hear all of these motorcycles come up to the outside of the bar. And that's when the rest of the crew called the Crazy 88s 
come into the bar. It's about 30 to 35 guys led by her assistant. And this is when all hell breaks loose. It was bloody before when the bride was fighting the henchmen. But when the crazy 88s get in here, this is where, like when Eric said, it goes up to 11. The fight that ensues, arms go flying, heads go flying, and the blood flows out during this scene. Gushers, (laughs) this would be a good way to put it. But eventually, the bride comes through this, and that leads us to probably one of the most beautiful, serene scenes after we come out of all of this chaos, and it is just utter chaos, we come to this serene scene where there's like a little serenity garden behind this bar restaurant, and Oren is waiting for her out there, and the snow is starting slowly falling. It's just absolutely gorgeous, and the way it's shot couldn't be more perfect. They have their showdown Oren doesn't believe that it's a Hanzo sword that the bride has. And they cross swords and they have their fight. And it ends up, of course, with the bride. She cuts the top of Oren's head off and kills Oren. It's complete opposite. It's like the yin and the yang. It's completely different. This is not full of blood. What makes it so great is that it's all white. So when you do see the blood, it's heightened. It's accentuated more because it's on the white. And that's what really closes this show out. It closes it out. I mean, we do have a little bit of a cut where we see that she's going off to America. And because this is then where she's going to find Vernita because Vernita was the second person to die. And she's going to go on the rest of her journey. I know there's no way I did this any justice. No, 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 no. You you did a good this, job on it. You described the thing in details. In the restaurant. That's chaos. It is one thing after another. It's just so crazy. It's beat for beat perfect to go from all of that chaos to that serenity that is the last scene. It yeah. just makes it, makes it so perfect. I'll be short with this It's because you did a great job describing it. It's an incredible scene. The violence is over the top, but it does have that kind of kung fu style reminiscent of the David Carradine 1970s movies. Well, just completely amped up a hundred times, obviously. I like the scene. You didn't bring this up, but the scene where she cuts off uh, the arm of Sophie. <laughs> and Sophie yeah. just like, ah! Yeah, just just to set up, she's not messing around here. She takes Sophie, who's one of her assistant, part of her clan, and lets her know I'm serious, and just slices her arm off for no reason. It is on. <laughs> to wrap up my section of this, I would definitely say that I do like the fact that you go into that serenity garden with the snow falling. I thought that was a great way to end this. And how does it end? She gets lobotomized, right? She just gets the (laughs) top of her head cut off. It's just so Tarantino, and it's a great way to end the movie, kind of leading into the the second series. What are your uh, thoughts on it, Ken? The scene is totally awesome. We have to use the black and white parts to minimize the blood that's all over the place. That's why we're going back and forth between color and black and white. If he doesn't do this, it's not going to get an R rating. It's C-17. NC-17, not going to make as much money as it needs to make. I really enjoy the fight between her and Gogo. It's almost like they're 
Gogo's like Equals. this innocent little schoolgirl. Oh, the fact that that she stabs that poor guy who just hooked up with her. Oh and, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's got what like a Ferrari, and she's like, "That's like Italian trash." Italian trash. Like you want to stick it in me or something like that? Instead, she sticks it in him with a sword. She's crazy. And then her little giggle when the bride tells her to walk away, and she goes, "That's how you plead for mercy." Just has that little funny she's giggle. Like, that uh, weapon, yeah, that thing is is something else. The server who was wearing the Charlie Brown outfit, that was kind of funny. And also, I think a little humor before everything right. went down. So <laughs> I, you guys remember chuckling in the theater when he when they said that he's like, "Hey, you look yes. like Charlie Brown." Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah, I, when yeah. when the first time I saw him, I'm like, he looks like Charlie Brown. Ken, I'm glad you brought up with the black and white. That was a point that I wanted to make, and I had forgotten to make it when I was just going through everything because it just got lost. The reason that he cut to not only for for reasons to make sure he got an R rating, but it's also an homage too because back in the day, TV censors would not allow so much blood on the screen. So to minimize the actual look of blood when fight scenes would happen on TV for during for like these kung fu tv shows they would cut to black and white and that's exactly why tarantino did it the way he did it he said so in in interviews and everything that that's why it was cut that way one thing i did forget we are left at the end of this with bill stroking sophie's hair this is where we find out the teaser when she throws him in the trunk of the car yep she's in the hospital and bill's stroking her hair Right. And we hear Bill ask her, does she know that her daughter's alive? Immediately we cut to black. I remember being in the movie theater when that happened and being like, oh, no, he didn't. We saw it opening weekend. It was packed. Everybody all at once had that collective. (gasps) I remember that moment and it was cool. And seeing this with a bunch of people, the whole scene with the crazy 88s is just bananas. You had like the first five of the crazy 88s come down. You have the one mm-hmm. guy and she just tears them. And then you have the other like four to come down. The last one, which is the woman. I always wondered if that was the same woman that tried to kill her before when she found out she was mm. pregnant. Because they looked very similar, but you couldn't tell because they all had masks. I will say this. I love outdoor scene. The one-on-one with the Lucy Lewis character, a pretty Caucasian girl, likes to play with samurai. So I always love the line. And, and then after she cuts her scalp off, she goes, it is a Hanzo sword. I like the homage. I, I like the fight. It's the right length after everything that we've gone through. It's slowed down because we need to catch our breath here from everything that we just saw. And I think it is funny that at the end, when he, she's fighting the crazy 88s, you had that little young guy and she like basically slaps him with the, <laughs> with right, the sword on right. his butt and tells yeah. him to go home to his mama. It's fun. There's so much we can really talk about this scene, but because of time, we just have to move on. But this is a great way to end the first film. And makes you thirsty for the second part because you still know you're going to have Al, you're going to have Bud, and you're going to have Bill. That's why I like this movie being two parts because we're desperately waiting for that second Mm -hmm. film. And I think that's a good reason to have this in, in two parts. That's a really good way to to wrap up the first movie. And here again, like I said before I started the chapter, if you've not seen this, you have to see it to experience it. It's just completely bananas. I can't reinforce it enough. You have to see it to believe it. There's so many twists and turns and stuff that goes through it. There's no way to really describe it. 
Okay, well, let's roll on into the second movie, Kill Bill Volume 2. We're not going to make you wait for the next episode. We're going into Volume 2, 2004, one year later for this one. Everyone's anticipating. So now we're going to go chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and then 10, which is not marked as 10, but is marked as the face-to-face. I kind of like how these movies are broken up into chapters, too. It's kind of cool as well. They do a better job here than they do at Pulp Fiction, where it seems like we lose the chapters. Here, he's better at keeping the chapters listed. However, they seem to run into each other, as we'll see here with chapter 6 and chapter 7. They kind of blend into 7, and where we could actually have cut 6 a little earlier and started 7 then, but we'll talk about that here right now. The movie starts out, obviously, with Uma Thurman driving in the car, pretty much saying, hey, this is what's going on. I'm going to kill Bill which I thought was kind of cool, kind of a little bit of a synopsis of, hey, here's what you missed. This is where we are. The Massacre at Two Pines. It's uh, an interesting one. This is where it all begins. She's at the church in Two Pines. You've got the pastor, the pastor's wife. You've got the pianist played by Samuel L. Jackson. Little cameo by him there. You've got some friends who are the, the wedding party. Then you got her husband. It's a wedding rehearsal, if you will. She's like, I'm done with this for now. I'm going to go get some air. She walks out. And hey, who's out there playing the flute instrument? It's Bill. So now we get to actually see what Bill looks like. We see Bill's character instead of him looking like Dr. Evil stroking a cat or something. And he seems like a pretty cool guy. I mean, right off the bat, the banter between them is very civilized. She's like, you know, are you going to behave? I don't behave, but I'll try and be sweet. And he goes into the church, and she obviously panics and introduces him as her father. But she's going by, once again, another name. And everything seems to be flowing very well. You know, there's no real issues that we can see. All of a sudden, you get the back-out image of the front of the church, and you see the group walking in with their guns behind their back. And then they pull them out, and they just start massacring everyone. This leads up to the scene in chapter one and or chapter two, if you want to call it that, where she's on the floor, obviously. And then it leads to an interesting scene where Bill drives off to visit Bud at Bud's trailer. And he's pretty much just given like a synopsis of what's happened. Don't underestimate her. Bud says that he got rid of his sword. He pawned it for 250 Did he? I guess we'll find out later. It's an interesting scene where they're kind of going back and forth. And you're looking at Bud and you're like, this guy is part of this elite killing force. He just looks like a a redneck hillbilly living in a mobile home in nowhere, Texas. It makes absolutely no sense, but it's an interesting conversation that they have. And of course, that leads into uh, chapter seven, which we'll talk about here in a little while. What are your thoughts on six, Ken? Right off, I'm going to talk about the Bud part, because I believe that everything that you just described that happened at the wedding is the reason why Bud looks like he does. I think he regrets everything that happened. That's why he got out of the business. And I think that's why he lives poorly. He has a crap job, which we'll talk about later. He is almost there to fade away into nothing. They haven't talked since that incident. You're probably right. Bud doesn't really care much about anything. And and I'll explain this a little bit more in, in the next chapter. I love when Beatrice is walking to go out of the chapel and she hears the flute and she knows that Bill's going to be there when she walks out. 
she almost seems kind of relieved almost to a certain extent when she's walking out there. She's not afraid at all. She doesn't seem afraid at all, which I'm mm-hmm. kind of surprised by this. I love they're talking back and forth. He can't promise that he can be nice, but he'll try to be sweet. She tries to explain what's going on, but he doesn't want to hear any of it. I think he has this mindset, and I don't think he wants her to talk him out of doing what he's getting ready to do. My biggest issue with this scene is the group comes out of nowhere. I mean, if you look around, it's like there's nothing around there. Where I mean, where were they hiding? I mean, were they just dropped off all of a sudden? I mean, was Sophie like had a car and just dropped them off at the exact moment? Because I couldn't figure out where they were hiding before this all happened. Because it doesn't happen too much longer after Bill and her talk and she goes back into the wedding rehearsal. And I like... David Carradine here, he's really cool here. The fact that he is a vicious assassin. Leader, yeah, assassin leader, right? Yeah, but you just seem to like him because of how elegant he is. We joke around about how we love to listen to Roger Ebert's reviews. He's like the Roger Ebert of samurai movies or whatever you want to call it. He got that coolness and the, the way he speaks is interesting. And you want to hear things that come out of Bill's mouth. And I think that's what sets the whole tone. I'm a little disappointed Samuel L. Jackson didn't swear at all. I mean, granted, I understand it's in the church, but could he give us one swear word? Could have he quoted something from Ezekiel or something? Just something to just be Samuel L. Jackson. This was you very know, funny you mentioned Jackson. that. Because yeah. besides those Capital One commercials, I didn't think there was a movie he hasn't sworn in. Now i got to search his uh, repertoire of movies. I don't think he cursed and do the right thing because he's the DJ. Okay. Mm. I do feel bad for all the wedding party there. I mean, they seem to be good people. Her soon-to-be husband seems like a nice guy. He, he's very respectful to Bill. I was hoping he would say something mm-hmm. stupid to give Bill an opportunity to kill him. But he didn't give him anything. No. He was respectful. Bill didn't uh, like, like he him was. because he was a simpleton. I think Bill's reason for killing him is just because he happened to be part of the problem here. Yeah. You know, they yeah. just were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It didn't matter who she was marrying, she could have married the president of the United States and he would have killed his ass. You're exactly right. David Carradine is at his most cool here. He's been in so many really good movies. I mean, he's made his fair share of clunkers, though, too. In everything, he always holds himself with a certain coolness that, I mean, he was Kane from Kung Fu. The banter between the two of them is, I mean, it's it's classic Tarantino. The way he crafts the conversations are so great. I think the reason that she's not so afraid is because at the end of the day, she knows she holds the trump card that she's pregnant with his kid, and he wouldn't possibly kill her. Obviously, she underestimated that. I think the way it's shot in black and white here to start the movie off, I think is a really great idea because it is, this situation is black and white. It's good and bad. There's no ambiguity between any of these characters. Her soon-to-be husband and friends are all really good people. The pastor and his wife, even though she kind of takes it as a little bit of a judgy type of a thing, I mean, she's pregnant and they're still going to marry her and they seem like really good people. And Rufus goes out of his way to make sure that they have a song. These are good people. It's black and white. I love the steady cam shot coming back out of the church and it stops right behind the four assassins. Just a classic scene where you're looking up at them and they're walking into the two pines. I will say one final thing. I think it's really kind of cool. I always have dug throughout both of these movies when the bride is given a chance to narrate. 
I love her narration to start the movie off where she gives the two different names is the massacre at Two Pines. And there's two different names that the news organizations have given what happened. One was the El Paso wedding massacre or something like that. It's just a small detail, but it's really kind of cool. I will say one thing I didn't like was the beginning part with the car. I I felt like it was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And also not really needed. I mean, I don't need to know that you're on your way to kill Bill. First of all, we haven't gotten to Bud and we haven't gotten to Al yet. And we're already basically telling me that's already been done and you're moving on to Bill. It's a cool way to enter right into the title scene at the beginning of the movie where she ends with, and I'm off to kill Bill. I would have rather seen Bill, the start of the movie, hearing the flute. And not seeing Bill yet, but maybe seeing his mouth and the flute itself playing. That's how I would have started this movie off. And I think that would have been a little bit more setting it up for the next scene. That's just a personal thing for me. It's not terrible. I just felt like it wasn't needed. Yeah, I could see that. It it did seem a little cartoonish. But with Tarantino, he's going you know all out on all directions here. He's throwing everything into the pot, seeing what sticks. All right, cool. Let's move on to our next chapter. This one's one of my personal favorites, I'll be honest with you. The Lonely Grave of Paula Schultz. This one's messed up. <laughs> totally. Yeah, this is fun messed up. And like I said earlier, Bill talking to Bud about the bride coming in, that she just killed the 88s, and he's like, there's 88 of them? And he's like, no, that's what they just call themselves. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, yeah. I think the conversation is kind of fun. It, and it is. I, I enjoy it very much, and I love the line where he says, she deserves her revenge, and we deserve to die. And I, I love his attitude. He thinks that they did something wrong because she was part of the group and because I almost want to say there's kind of a, a code, and they didn't live by that code to go one-on-one. So I, I think that's the reason why Bud is where he's at. And then he works at the titty bar. He's getting reamed out by his boss for being late. I think he's 20 minutes late, and there's nobody right, there and yeah. giving him the riot act, and he's crossing out his name on the calendar and telling him he's not going to work again until he calls him, except he's going to tell him to go mop the floor in the bathroom because there's crap all over it. He's so he gets literally shoveling his, shit. Right. And he doesn't like his hat. He really doesn't like his hat. <laughs> really hats. hates the hat, yeah. I, I don't know where they got Walmart Elvis to decide to run this titty bar, but <laughs> Elvis is all Elvis. over this movie. I mean, it's the song they picked for their wedding, Love Me Tender. Elvis, right. you have an Elvis-looking guy who runs the this. sunglasses that the bride takes off of right. Buck. Of right. Buck or like Elvis style, yeah. Exactly. Even the bar itself looks realistic. You get into that office room, and that looks like an office that probably would be there. I mean, I've never been in an office at a titty bar before, but I can see <laughs> sure that. Sure you haven't. I've been in re- restaurants and bars, and I know what a bar's uh, office will look like. And it looks like that. There's a bunch of realisms here that help this along. But when he gets back, and he pauses before he goes into his camper, I don't know if he could smell her scent or something, but he knows... She- she's there there's something about her being there it's kind of like earlier with lucy Lou's character when she throws the dart because she knows mm-hmm. that somebody's there they know how to sense when people are around they have spidey senses that spidey Spidey's sense right uh, the fact that he's just waiting for her with that shotgun full of salt and he just plugs her with it and then ejects that serum which bill's a scientist and uh, i don't know if this is something he got from bill i don't know where he got this from 
But I kind of like this. It's interesting. And then getting ready to put her in the grave, he calls it a Texas funeral. And then he gets that weasel of a guy to help him out. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. help me out of there. And I'm thinking, wait a second, you just pulled a ladder out of there afterwards. Why couldn't you just climb the ladder out? To be buried alive is one of the scariest things that I can think of. To me, you feel for Beatrice. Uh, God, just... imagine if you would have uh, shot the mason eyes. Oh, my goodness. But again, I, I like the fact that Bud gives her a fighting chance. He gives her a flashlight. He doesn't have to do any of that. He could just kill her right there and then. But he gives her an opportunity. No, again, Bud's not giving her an opportunity. He's, Bud he's, is giving her an opportunity. No, There's, it's no, actually no. more sadistic. It's more it's sadistic. Actually, he's giving her a flashlight. Because she can see that she, she has can no see. hope. It is. It's totally more sadistic. Maybe it is. Because he thinks she's dead, but there's still that fighting chance, or is that still opportunity that you somehow she can get out of there? Leaves gets... us wondering, and that's what it's supposed to do. Yeah, it leaves right. us wondering how's she going to get out of this. But I wonder why they use the name Polish Schultz. Couldn't find anything on it, and it doesn't look like she's in a graveyard when they're doing all this. But then afterwards, she's in the graveyard, and so <laughs> how about they dig I'm up just... the dead body and the coffins open there? Oh, it's yeah. crazy. She walks across the street to the diner, and she's got all that dirt on her. Right. Cashier's looking at her. She looks like a zombie because he knows the cemetery's across the street. Right. The fact that Beatrice is there, and he's waiting for her, and he wins that battle gives Bud a new life. And the first person he calls is out because he wants to sell that sword. Why? Well, first of all, we find out Larry has a sword. Second of all, he's going to get a million dollars. He feels okay now. He's done his one-on-one battle and has won and now can feel okay about what's happened to Beatrice and can move on. And I like this about Bud. I think it's interesting. And we'll talk more about Bud a couple chapters down the road. Cool. This is awesome here. And it's really cruel. Bud's probably one of the most complex characters because he knows that he deserves to die. He knows that at the end of the day that they've made a contract, essentially. There's no way they're getting out of this life alive. But he thought what happened to Beatrix is was a dirty deal, and he thought that it wasn't done honorably. I think, Ken, you had mentioned that you think that this is what caused the rift between he and Bill, and I agree with you 100%. I think they argued over this, and I think Bud walked away. In the strip club, we have Sid Haig in there, a wonderful B-movie uh, star. It's so cool. It does feel real. All of these situations feel real. Even though we come to like Bud a little bit, boy, he turns vicious. He's just as mean and just as twisted as everybody else in this whole getup. True. What you guys were talking, I did find out, is believed by fans that Paula Schultz was the wife of Dr. Keen Schultz, was a main character in Django Unchained. Might be the connection I was reading that while we were hmm. talking. That's the real connection. That is a cool that's connection That's interesting. To have. Okay. I would never have put those two together. That's wild. Cool. Ted, let's uh, roll on into Chapter 8 here, the cruel uh, tutelage of Pai Mei. This is carroting Kung Fu at its finest here. Over the top. It's something, man. Our main protagonist here has been presented with life or death, and we know that she's got to figure her way out of being buried alive. This is where we're going to find out how she's going to get the tools necessary to get out of this situation. We immediately cut to around a campfire. Bill is talking with Beatrix. We get the header that says it's like four or five years ago. And Bill's telling her a story, and he's doing a real 
Peter and the Wolf type of a thing with his flute that he's playing. It's a another classic Quentin Tarantino move. What we get out of this is in the next scene, he's taking Beatrix to go learn from his master. And his master was Master Pai Mei. He is a Kung Fu master. We realize that Bill was telling the story of Pai Mei and how he was insulted and he ended up killing a bunch of monks. He's not to be messed with. Pai Mei's a badass. And so we go into the training scene where Beatrix then meets Pai Mei and Bill has told her that he's not going to like you because he doesn't like Caucasian women. I don't think he likes people in general. He puts her through the training and the training is brutal. The fight sequences here are kind of dreamlike, which is really kind of cool. The whole scene of her learning, even though it's a training montage scene, it's almost told in a dreamlike way. Paime has her start to punch through a board, but only being three inches away. And of course, when he does it, he goes right through this thick board and it's hard. He ends up teaching her the Eagle Claw Kung Fu. And this is how she becomes a killer. Paime trains her in how to be a Kung Fu master. Eventually, she does break through the board, punching three inches away. She ends up going through the board. After she leaves Paime's tutelage, we cut back to underneath the ground. She has a uh, shaving tech. Uh, yeah, it's tool. like a utility. It's like a, a knife. utility shaving yeah. knife. Yeah. And she gets that and she cuts through the rope that Bud used to tie her up. So she starts to punch through the wood casket that Bud This is where it gets a little far-fetched, in my opinion. It's something. We know she's got to get out, and this is, this, right. like I said, this is the story of how she's going to get out. But I love it and how she's she... like a groundhog after she gets out and just <laughs> burrows up that Well, that we, get the, we get the Night of the Living Dead Night of the Living the Dead, hand, baby, yes. The hand coming up out of the ground, and you feel victory for her. You feel that she's overcome what is going to be the greatest hurdle to her getting to Bill. She's overcome the peril that was put in front of her. You want her with every step, every thing that she's grabbing to get herself up. The way it's shot and the way it's paced is perfect. You're struggling with her to get up and out. And then, of course, we get the little comedy at the end where she walks over to the diner that's across the street from the cemetery, and she's covered in dirt, of course, and she asks for a glass of water. The look on the stunned waitress's face. It's classic. It's hilarious. Very classic, yeah. And it's exactly what we needed here to cut the tension that had been built. It's a perfect buffer to what we're going on to. I think this is awesome. I love the training sequences with Paime. He's wonderful. The way that it's played, it's very over the top. It's very kind of almost cartoonish. But like I said, it's almost told in a dreamlike way. And I, I really love how it's shot. I love this part of the journey. And this is also takes from a lot of Kung Fu movies from the seventies where oh, yeah. it's obvious. You, this is the lore of the master and, and everything. And I, th- I think it's cool. I may is his characters and other Kung Fu movies. So this is not the first time we're introduced to this character. In fact, the character has been reincarnated a number of times. In fact, the, the actor, uh, I think his name is Gordon Liu, First of all, he played Johnny Moe, and then he plays this character here. But in earlier films, played the one who went against Pai Mei. So it was kind of like full circle coming around. 
That's um, cool. So, I didn't know that. Yeah. So there's some really cool homages to that character here. Because this character is believed to be have lived for a thousand years. They play with the idea of how old he is in this movie. It almost is like a reincarnation. You know, other actors, people play him eventually. It's funny that you brought that up because it's similar to Hattori Hanzo. The name had been used in other Kung Fu movies, Hong Kong and Japanese movies. That's really interesting. I didn't know that about the Pai Mei character. Yeah, and the Pai Mei character actually is based on a historical legend of I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. It backs me. Hmm. There's some historical background to this particular character. I totally agree with you. This training is amazing. I love it. I want more of it. I want mm-hmm. so much more. I would love a movie just based on this training alone. <laughs> and I, I think he really admires Beatrice here. I think he really likes her and her attitude. He comes to. I, actually, I think he's engaged right off the bat because she is very um, respectful. And even though she says that she could do this and she can do that, but she's always respectful. I think it's interesting that when uh, Bill comes down to, after talking to him, that he's gotten the <laughs> shit beat out of him. Uh, it's like, what happened to you? You know, I went up there and he beat the crap out of me, but he doesn't say why. I really like this story. There's just little love story here between Beatrice and Bill that we're seeing here, beginning with the flu playing around the fire and then him taking her to learn Kung Fu. There's a deleted scene there where we can even learn more where he takes on another guy who says, you killed my master, and then they have a fight. And you could see her just <laughs> loving watching Bill do his Kung Fu. You could see that she wants to be with Bill. And Bill wants to be with her. That's interesting that they would have cut that out. Because wouldn't that have been equivalent in Pulp Fiction where we see John Travolta dance? And that's kind of his thing. Yeah, exactly. What are you best known for? <laughs> right. Yeah, check out the deleted scene if you haven't. I can see why they didn't include it because it didn't flow as well as it should have. I don't know. Maybe he just didn't want to do some retakes on it. And as far as her getting out of the grave. I'm okay with it because I think once the dirt comes in, the dirt is is new. It's loose. So I think if it had sit there for days or it got wet or whatever the case may be, then I have a bigger problem. But when it's loose, it's going into the actual coffin, which allows her to dig and the rest of it is kind of falling down below. So it gives her more of an opportunity to crawl up. So I'm and pretty we know cool she had this. to get out of there. So, I mean, it's fine. It's always we cool. We could test it out on Eric later dead. and see if it yeah, works. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Six feet under. And it's always cool to see the Night of the Living Dead hand come up out of the yes. out of the ground. All right, so let's move it on here to Chapter Nine. L and I. This is a very interesting chapter, in my opinion. One of my favorites the, with the fight scene in this one too, which is also over the top, mm-hmm. but still kind yeah, of cool. I love all the world building that Quentin takes time to do, and that's like the whole Pyme thing, and that adds so much structure to the movie it's what a lot of modern day directors leave out on writers they don't take the time to build the story all right so let's move it on here to chapter nine this is my favorite probably part of the whole movie daryl hannah this is where she really shines i really enjoy the interaction with bud they're talking about the hanzo sword it seems like she doesn't know much about swords even though she's been taught how to use a sword but she seems to have no knowledge of what a real good sword can do but of course she gives him the money for the sword so there's a black mamba and it bites bud a few times bud's dying and while he's dying i love the fact that she goes into 
kind of a, a list of what the Black Mamba is going to do. She's got it all written down in that little notebook. She's got it all written yeah. down. She likes to take notes because she took notes all about where Beatrice was buried and what name it was under and all that good stuff. And here she's just reading off and she's just like gargantua. She just loves that word. And I just love how Dara Hannah is delivering these lines. She comes off as being evil. It's interesting that she just keeps on talking all the way till Bud just kicks the bucket. And then she leaves and then there's Beatrice and she kicks her and sends her and they go into this big fight. It's a really good fight. They're trained by the same master. They're going back and forth. Beatrice throws a bucket of, I think, spit back and spit, spit in her face and she's like, gross. And then she sticks her head down the toilet even more gross. But it got the spit <laughs> off. Hey, you right? know, to look clean, you know. Yeah. But the fight is fun. I'm not a huge fan of watching women fight in movies. A lot of times I don't feel like it's realistic. I think Can't it fight, really man. works here. I think it works so well here. It's very believable, their fight. And then how it ends with Beatrice finding Bud's sword. There's not enough sword play here, but the fact that she plucks out El's eye, that's the best way to end the scene. And so yeah, you might think that, that she might have died because there's that black mamba there because she's blind can't find her way. I like to think that she left her that. But I think her being blind for the rest of her life is worse than death. Oh, she's as good as dead anyway. She might be good as dead, but I like the idea of her being just blind for the rest of her life. And the fact that she takes her foot and smushes her eyeball. Right. That's pretty cool. And I like Dara Hannah's, I killed your master. <laughs> it's so cheesy how she does it, but it's cool at the same time. If you would have told me that Dara Hannah was the one that was going to be cast in this role before I saw this movie, I would have told you miscast. I would not have believed that she could have pulled this off. Agreed, and man. I was, she, it was, she was the best. Back to Bud Michael Madsen. Other movies I've seen, I mean, eh. But in, in Tarantino movies, Tarantino knows how to write for him. Madsen knows how to get the most out of what he's given. It's a perfect marriage between the two as far as how they work together. The chemistry between those two are, is, is amazing. It's De Niro Scorsese-esque. Except De Niro can still act without Scorsese. I don't know if Madsen can do <laughs> yeah. it without and Madsen's kind of, it's touch and go with his other roles. But you're right, Michael Madsen is awesome here. And Daryl Hannah is, she plays the treacherous villain good. I don't know if it's because she has the eye patch that kind of makes it even more a little bit comic book villainish. It is cool. But it's just over the top enough. It's campy without being campy. And that's a fine line to straddle because otherwise then it comes off too jokey. You almost felt for Bud had he not been such a evil person in the, the previous scenes that you know that he's not going to get away with this money. It's just a matter of what's going to happen. And I love the way the tension builds here between the two characters. Like you said, Ken, I think it's great that she ends up giving the monologue after he had been bitten by the Mamba. The Mamba's the most deadly snake, and that's why she chose it. But why didn't she choose the snake that's her code name? It is what it is. I, it's still a lot of fun. Outside of Bill, this is what we've been waiting for. These two characters to go at it because they were the two love interests of Bill. They've never liked each other. And going back to where I said at the beginning, nothing is left undone. We talked about the tin plate in the head and it never really comes to fruition. Well, we see <laughs> where Pyme has taken L's eye. And that comes back again, and it pays off where Beatrix takes Elle's other eye after she learns that she killed Pyme, which, that sucks that she killed Pyme. But that's Elle's character. She 
was never going to subject herself to the type of hard teaching that Pai Mei was going to subject her to. Besides being greedy with the money, why does she kill Bud? I mean, that's Bill's brother. There's no backstory that they had any tension between the two. I mean, he calls her thinking that she's going to want the sword and give him money. Just to be evil. She wasn't going to let Bud get the one up on her. I guess she really wanted the sword and not pay up the money. And if I was Beatrice, I would take that $1 million. I'm glad you brought that up. That I never understood why she didn't take the money. But Yeah, I would have too. I don't know. She's getting tickets to go all over the world. She's got to have money somewhere. I mean, I would imagine they're like three or $4,000 just to go to Japan, probably. First class. The music here is awesome throughout the whole movie. I love how he sets up everything with background music. Or sometimes it's songs that you know, but he spins them a different way. For me, to a certain extent, I like the soundtrack a little bit more than I did Pulp Fiction. And I love Pulp Fiction soundtrack. I think it sets everything up better for what the scenes are. Tarantino is like Scorsese. He's just Mm -hmm. a master of putting the right music in at the right scene. I guess the guy who did the source, a friend of his, and was willing to do it for free. It was Robert Rodriguez because the deal was Robert Rodriguez did the original scoring for a dollar. So Quentin would come and direct part of Sin City with Robert Rodriguez on his movie. One of the musical directors here is the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. Some of the music, the connectors and everything, you can kind of get a little bit of the Wu-Tang vibe. And of course, the Wu-Tang Clan, the reason that they were named the Wu-Tang Clan was because their collective love of Kung Fu movies. That's kind of cool. Leading us into the final section here, face-to-face, like we had said before, Bill likes to collect father figures in this case. So... Beatrix goes, finds one of his father figures, Esteban Viejo, which is played by the guy who played the sheriff, which you would never know that the two people were the same. No. He's a great actor, but he's a pimp and he's in Mexico. Actually, it was shot at a real whorehouse, which is kind of an interesting little tidbit. But her whole deal is to find out where Bill's hiding out. And of course, Esteban gives up where Bill's located and we finally get the showdown that we've been waiting for. And in classic Quentin Tarantino style, it doesn't happen the way you think it's going to happen. Right from the start, he turns the final confrontation on its head where she walks in with her gun, her swords on her back, and she's immediately disarmed by looking at her daughter and her daughter's fake toy gun. The look on Uma Thurman's face here, this is some of the best acting in the entire movies. The look on her face is complete and utter shock. You go through each emotion with her, with the look on her face. It's a brilliant piece of acting. And she plays along with her daughter and with Bill. They end up having almost a family-like moment where Bill makes uh, like sandwiches for them. And then it's time for BB, her daughter, to go to bed. And she watches a samurai movie with her mom. And then we get what we've been waiting for is the showdown between Bill and Beatrix. Leading up to that, Ted, you, you almost say, wow, Bill's an incredible father. Yeah, just really, everything you do. he's doing for BB, you're just like, oh my goodness, this is the guy who tried to kill her mother, but he it's, seems like such a great father. It's one of those wild contrasts that's just awesome. Here again, it's disarming. Totally. It's not what you're anticipating for this final battle. 
he shoots her with the truth serum dart and he asks her of course the questions of why she left him and you almost side with bill because you're like yeah that is a messed up thing to do to let somebody think that you're dead and go off and do something else and that's where we get the scene where beatrix finds out that she's pregnant and the target that she was going to kill had sent an assassin to kill her and that's a really cool interaction, too, because they both have guns pointed at each other and they kind of have a woman to woman moment. The other assassin walks out of the room and says congratulations as she's leaving the <laughs> leaving the hotel room, which is kind of amusing. Bill's got to ask his questions about why she did what she did. This is going to be the phrase of the podcast in classic Tarantino style. As we're waiting for the serum to go through Beatrix's body, he tells the story of how Superman and Clark Kent and everything. And it's just, it's so wonderful. It is a cool, and, cool analogy he makes there. Oh, it's awesome. Breaking everything would, down. I yeah. would never have thought about it that way. And you can see how the bad guy would think about sure. Clark Kent and Superman that way. And so then Bill and Beatrix sit down across from each other and they know that it's time to fight. And he goes, we know we have to cross Hanzo swords. And Bill's Hanzo sword is freaking awesome with the little devil's head. And instead of the sword being the thing that gets Bill, she gets him with the five finger exploding heart technique. He didn't think that Pai Mei had taught that to anybody else. And this had been brought up when he was telling her before he, he introduced her to Pai Mei. And here again, it comes back around that Tarantino uses something that had been mentioned before. And Bill, he looks at her and he says in a very cool way, "Do how do I look? And he knows that he has to get up and walk five steps and he's going to die. And you feel that with Uma Thurman. You're like, she still has feelings for this person, even yeah. though he, after everything. And I think, Eric, you hit the nail on the head that drove to this point home. The pathos that she goes through, he has raised their daughter very well, and he is a good guy. She knows that her daughter's going to miss him, and you go through all of that with her, and he walks away, and he and he dies, and she's won, and she takes BB away, and she has her moment in the bathroom where she's cried because she's finally through everything, and her and BB go off to live their life. That is until maybe Vernita's daughter comes to find her later. Right. And that's the end of our movie. It's an amazing way to end this movie. And I love that it doesn't happen in the traditional way you would think it. It happens in quintessential Quentin Tarantino style. It, he does it his own way on the way out. And I think it's a perfect bookend. And here again, David Carradine, simply magnificent. He yeah. is. He's incredible. And in he's the type of actor, they say, you listen to him read the phone book. And the way his delivery is and the way he does things is so cool. I think he's one of the great actors. Couldn't have said any better myself. What do you think of the end, Ken? I think it's the right way to end everything. I do like Esteban. He's a nasty guy. He's a pimp. But at the same time, mm -hmm. these characters have character. Did you notice um, one of the hookers with all like the lip fungus and stuff? Yeah. Oh. Herpes was and the everything. Actor. The yeah. rest They're of them all... were real prostitutes, but really? that was the one that had the, yeah. Jeez. It's interesting how she comes in and BB's like, bang, bang, mommy. I don't know if they're playing assassins or what, but they're playing something there. And it does seem like Bill's a good dad. And then they, of course, talk about the goldfish that she stepped on. 
That was an interesting, uh, yeah. It was, yeah. yeah. That was really messed up. And she's like, she yeah. has some of her father in her. A little bit. Definitely. A little bit. Definitely. I don't know if she knows what's going on at the end there. Does she know that daddy's dead? Does she wonder where she's going now? Because all she's known is Bill these last four years. Right. I don't know if Al was a mother type of figure because we know that he was hooking up with her. Bill tells Al that he loves her. I don't think he really does. Probably loves way, her. He like, probably does, but not the way he In loves his own Beatrice. Bill way. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. I wanted a little bit more of the fight scene. I wanted to see a little bit more of the David Carradine kung fu guy that we saw in the tv show and so i'm a little disappointed in that and how quick that went down but i agree with ted this is the way that bill talks he can hold a conversation about practically anything and we would listen there's also part of you that kind of wishes they would just bury the hatchet and just wait up because he is a good father defeats the whole purpose of the name defeats the whole purpose of the whole movie we wonder what's going to happen to BB later. Will BB follow her father's footsteps? As as Bill says to Beatrice, you're a killer. You were born that way. Is BB going to be the same thing? Hey, doesn't Tarantino have one final movie to make? He might make a Kill Bill three. It's been played around, but it, I don't think it's ever. Well, you really happen. can't call it Kill Bill. Yeah. Well, what, right now I know Uma Thurman's not really thrilled with Quinn Tarantino because I think she they've made up some. Yeah, the scene you're referring to is when she's going to meet Esteban. She's driving in a car, and it's an extremely rocky road that they're driving down. And there was supposed to be a stunt driver on scene. And for whatever reason, the stunt person never showed up. And Quentin convinced her, because of time, to go ahead and run the scene. And there was a car accident, and she ended up messing up her back. Uma Thurman was a victim of Harvey Weinstein, and this all came out during the whole proceedings with Harvey Weinstein. And it did, for the longest time, cause a rift between Uma Thurman and Quentin Tarantino, but they have made up. I don't know if they're ever as close as they were. They probably aren't, but they have made up. The last Hmm. thing I'll say about the ending that I like is her crying at the end of the bathroom. It's kind of like a combination of all type of cries. Oh, yeah. It's crying it's for losing a relief. loved one and Bill. It's crying for relief. It's crying just because she has a daughter and a future with her. I think that's just a great way to end the movie. Well, on that note, let's go into our reviews here. We'll start off with Ken. Take it away, Ken. We'll say out of all the movies of Quentin Tarantino that I've seen up to this point, this is by far my favorite. I love this type of movie because it hits us so many different genres that I can relate to. When growing up, there was a lot of kung fu movies that I saw on TV, especially with the dubbing. For a kid, it was funny. It's funny to watch that, but the kung fu itself was really good and really interesting. Uh, also, I was a big fan of Bruce Lee films. I, I really appreciated it for nostalgic. It was very nostalgic, but at the same time, very new. And I think that's what separates this movie from other Quentin Tarantino movies for me. He's amazing in how he does that. You could easily say that all these actors could be, except for David Carradine, could be miscast, but they don't. Uma Thurman, we never see her in something like this before, but she pulls it off. We don't think Dara Hannah's going to pull this off. I mean, she's the mermaid from Splash, for crying out loud. Up to this point, I don't think there was anything that I could remember Lucy Liu doing that would make me think that she was a badass as well. 
I just think he gets the most out of the actors, and the actors like working with him, and you can see that on film. This must have been fun for them to make. I didn't get sick watching this movie over and over again. As far as a final grade, I'm, I'm teetering on a B-plus or an A-minus here. So if I give it a B-plus, it's kind of like the highest B-plus I can give without entering the A area. Why is it not an A area? It's just there's so many other movies that I do love that I put in that area, and I just think it just misses the mark heading into that maybe top 100 movies of all time for me. But it's very close. Maybe you ask me a few weeks, few months from now, a few years, I might put it back at an A-, minus. but for right now, an extremely, really extremely hard, solid B+. plus. Cool. This is a, a very interesting movie for me because you got two movies. And for me, one movie is stronger than the other movie. But I'm going to have to judge them all on one. The first movie is stronger. I like Kill Bill 1 more than I like Kill Bill 2. Simple reason is I'm going to go against Ted. I'm going to go against Ted and probably Ken on the Grain here. I hate Kung Fu movies. There, I said it. I think they're stupid. Am I in the minority? I don't know. I think they're dumb. I don't like them. I like David Carradine as an actor, but even in Kung Fu, I'm like, yeah, this is stupid. I never watched them. It's not my thing. All right. So right there, you've got the Kung Fu training scene in two that really just kind of like, it just bores me. I understand you need it in this movie, though. So I'm fine with it. But I like Kill Bill 1 more than I like Kill Bill 2. Overall, I think this is an incredible movie series. I really would have liked to have seen these as one long movie, but I know obviously in that time frame, you know, the movies themselves are what over two hours long a piece to really get it into one movie. You're not going to have anything that's running four hours in a theater. That's just unheard of today. And it was unheard of then as well. The actors and actresses in this are just incredible. I think the chemistry is great. I love how it kind of throws everything all around. This is the type of movie you can't just watch from one scene and possibly watch all the way through because you're going to miss key factors to it. And you're going to ask yourself, what the hell did I just watch? For a movie that you really need to focus on from A to Z, I think that is a strong mark for this movie. This movie, Kill Bill 1 and 2, have so many curveballs, so much stuff coming out of left field, right field. You don't see it coming. It is definitely Tarantino-esque. This is him all the way. And especially you're going to see it down the road with his other movies throughout the next decade. But I love this movie. I wish I would have seen this one earlier. I'm sad that I had to wait to watch this series again for the podcast. This is definitely one I highly recommend. If you're a Tarantino fan and you haven't seen this, I don't know what the hell is wrong with you. Go out and watch it. But if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have seen the movies. You're probably a Tarantino fan. And everything we've talked about is probably right on par with you. There are a few things, obviously, I'm not crazy about. And because that, I'm kind of like Ken. I can't give it an A-. minus. But it is a hard, hard B+. Plus. All right, we've got Ted who's going to take us home on this one. Hey, this is no secret. <laughs> it's I, shocking. This is what makes Tarantino awesome. While it's so different stylistically than his other movies, it still has his feeling in it. And I love the way he brings his interpretation of different movie genres to his movies. It's an amazing duel of movies. I think Ken hit a really great point, and I think this goes throughout the entirety of Tarantino's career. 
he knows exactly how to cast. He has this ear for what actor is going to sound best with his words coming out of him or her. He's so pinpoint accurate on all of his casting choices. It's truly one of his great gifts. And he hits it out of the park here. David Carradine is awesome. Uma Thurman, this is her star-making vehicle. She hits it out of the park. Like you said, with Daryl Hannah, who would have thought that Daryl Hannah could have played this good of a villain? That being said, from the soundtrack all the way through the brilliant dialogue, it's just an awesome movie. I couldn't recommend it more. This is an A-plus for me. There isn't one of Tarantino's movies that's really almost out of my top 100, 125 movies. This is right up there, and I do consider this one movie because that's how Quentin envisioned the movie. There is a cut that's out there that has been shown at a few movie fests that is kind of a super cut. Unfortunately, it's not been made available for home consumption, but this is a movie you have to see. A movie you have to see to believe Kill Bill 1 is so crazy. It's cinematic brilliance. Movies are stories, and Tarantino has the ability to tell an amazing story. And even if you don't care for kung fu movies, this is a story that brings you in and you want to see it to the end. Just like Eric said. Yeah, and so you have here to. again, like I said, it's a it's an A plus for me. Cool. Yeah, I will say one more thing here. I'm going to change my grade. I am going to go with an A minus. Whoa! I, I thought about it. I thought about the B pluses that I've given out, and this movie is better than the B pluses I've given out. To I'm going to go with an A minus. Are one. you going? Are you going A minus across the board for one and two, or is there one? So that you like I better? do like two a little bit more than one, just because of Bud and L, and I like those two characters the most. So yeah, I like two more than one. And but there's just so much we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about Uma Thurman using the square thing like she did in Pulp <laughs> Fiction in the first chapter. We yeah. don't talk about her love for the Hanzo swords when she first sees them and how engaged she was by looking at them being well, in the cathedral for some it's people. It's combined four hour movie. I mean, yeah, there's so much so more much. we could talk about, and we spent a lot of time here. And yeah. I think that's another reason why I'm giving it an A minus because there's so much more I want to talk about. We just don't have the time. All right, Ted, where can they find us on the World Wide Web? We can be found on Twitter at movie underscore marquee with two E's. You can come and engage with us there. Let us know what you think about Kill Bill. Let us know what you think about our review, Kill Bill. Stuff that we didn't hit or stuff that we did hit. Also, you can check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and whatever podcast vehicle you're listening to us on. Um, If you could give us a rating and review, that would be great. That helps us get our name out there and gives us a good opportunity to do bigger and better things. Cool. What are they uh, saying about us on Facebook, Ken? Well, you could join our Facebook group by just going to the Movie Marquee and requesting to be part of the group, and we'll look it over and hopefully approve you to the group, and you can join in the conversation, our polls. And and, uh, one last thing I will add to long ago, we lost Ray Liotta, a fine actor, and we're looking forward to doing Goodfellas down the road, but sad to see him passing away at, at a young age. That's all I have. All right. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for this episode of the Movie Marquee. Uh, Next week, we are going to be going uh, back in time for uh, Tarantino's first movie, 
Reservoir Dogs. That was the voter's choice, I believe, the winner. Yes. Why do I have to be Mr. Pink? So. Mr. Pink's too much like Mr. Pussy. Okay. There All you right. go. You just there. answered your own question. There you go. So Reservoir Dogs, the movie that kicked it off. So we look forward to reviewing that one. So, folks, thank you and have a pleasant tomorrow. See you at the movies. See you next time at the Movie Marquee. Mm-hmm.